Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome to The Range on the Believe Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. I'm Ralph Irvin, and today we are moving away from an equipment focus as we look at the game as a whole. Amateur rounds are up, the pros are drawing huge audience numbers, and we're headed into an entirely new scenario, postseason majors. For that, we need to bring in someone who knows the game on our level and works with those of the highest reaches. He's a friend of mine dating back to close to 30 years when we met in college. And these days, you can see him on Morning Drive on Golf Channel. I'm pleased to be joined by Damon Hack. Damon, thanks for joining us here on The Range. Ralph, I appreciate it. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. It's always fun to talk with you. When we met way back in college, it was all about basketball at UCLA. I had zero golf experience, but were you the same or had you played growing up? I did not play growing up, and I look back fondly on those old UCLA days. You'd wear the black gloves courtside, giving Bill Ellaby a lot of grief when he came down from Cal. But at that point in my life, like you, I was a hoops fan. We'd go to the Rose Bowl for football games, but golf really didn't come into my, uh, you know, my line of sight until after college, middle of the 90s when Tiger Woods started winning U.S. Amateurs and then, of course, won the Masters in 97. So um, I might have played some miniature golf when we were at UCLA, but I had uh, not played uh, not even 18 holes of golf at that point. Well, like me, you went into sports radio, but then made a real serious decision to go into journalism. What uh, prompted that decision? Yeah, I was working in sports talk radio. Uh, Actually, when I was at UCLA, I was an intern at KMPC uh, 710, the all sports talk station, cutting tape for Joe McDonald and Doug Krikorian and and having a lot of fun, occasionally going to Dodgers and Lakers games. And basically the the higher-ups changed formats. They they changed the station from all sports to all news. So we were all getting laid off. And that was basically right before my graduation from UCLA. So I had a year where I was working in radio, but I knew I was kind of a, a lame duck and I had to figure out what to do. I decided to go to graduate school and got accepted, thankfully, to UC Berkeley's two-year uh, master's program in journalism. And that's where I started writing. Uh, the, the writing uh, discipline is, is a huge part of their two-year program. Got into the newspaper business uh, as an intern and then a uh, full-time scribe for the Sacramento Bee. I covered high schools and colleges. Had old that old uh, TRS-80. Some called it, finally, the, the Trash-80 computer where you'd have couplers you have to go find a pay phone to send your your story and did that for a year Sac State uh, some of the local uh, teams I'd back up you know Giants A's Niners and then I got on the Niners beat because nobody in the office wanted to do it nobody wanted to, to travel I, I was young they gave me a shot to, to do it for six weeks of training camp and uh, they gave me the job after seeing my writing for uh, 
for that summer. I did it for three years. And, and next thing you know, I, I, I was on my way uh, as a sports writer. Say on your way, you were on your way to the East Coast because you made a quick move uh, to New York and eventually golf crept into your repertoire. I remember a series of pieces that you did leading up to the U.S. Open at Bethpage Black, where they had you, a very amateur golfer, playing the golf courses for the majors. Yeah, I covered uh, that U.S. Open, and they said, why don't you go ahead and play it? Uh, Bethpage Black, 2002 U.S. Open, and I counted every shot, every stroke, put it out, and uh, I think I shot 112, if I remember correctly, 59, 53. Didn't make a par on the golf course, still one of the hardest uh, courses I've ever played. I'm a little bit better of a player. I, I've gone back and, and made a, a couple of pars on that golf course since, but at the time uh, I was way out over my skis, as they say. I hit the par uh, three seventeenth hole in regulation and three putted. That was my best shot at a par, and I ended up missing about a five-footer for par and doubled 18 and was like, this is just too much golf course for me, was one of the lines I wrote in that story but uh, you know one of those folks like yourself has been bitten by the golf bug we've been fortunate enough to play uh together mm -hmm. uh, down in orlando at, at the old disney course and it's been fun having a career in in golf you know especially having not grown up playing it but having fallen in love with the game as an adult that's where someone like yourself actually someone like me because i didn't play until after college either where we reach a different audience perhaps because we have this new appreciation it hasn't always been a part of our life and you kind of appreciate what golf brings you oh absolutely it's uh it's a it's a sport i'm now able to play with my sons even though i wasn't able to play with my dad my dad didn't play you know if golf was on television in our home when i was a kid it's because we were waiting for the laker game to come on or some nba game or nfl game to come on so um, but I tell you, now that I play it, I, I love it. I love watching it. And even if I wasn't in the golf business, I, I would watch the sport. I just love the sport. I love the history of the sport. I love reading the great uh, lions of the game, uh, the late, great Dave Anderson, for example, Herbert Warren Wind. I've read uh, Frank DeFord, Rick Riley. And it was a neat sports writing class that I took actually at Cal Berkeley during my second of two years there and it was called uh, sports writing. And, it, you know, I was really there at that point in the mid nineties where I was reading some of the great writers like, man, golf writing is really an evocative, beautiful sport. Um, in, the, in the written word is that old saying, the smaller the ball, the better the writing. I think mm -hmm. golf definitely fits that. It's just such a, a beautiful sport that unfolds over four days. Uh, hence, uh, you know, this operatic, uh, almost like finish, especially when you talk about, the 96 Masters, for example, with Greg Norman and Nick Faldo, or the 97 Masters, even though it was a blowout when Tiger won by 12, it was still a lot of tension and texture uh, to that week of golf. The beauty of being able to tell a story like that is when you can do it from the end and really, really craft the entire story. You were able to do that when you moved to Sports Illustrated, where it was now a weekly publication, where you could take the full picture and really show the beauty of the individual parts leading up to the story. Yeah, one of my favorite stories I wrote for SI was the game story for the Masters in 08, when Trevor Immelman won, and you know to talk to him afterwards and find out that he'd been sick uh, back in 2007, into 2008, had a stomach issue and, and was nervous and had a biopsy, thankfully came back negative. But at that time, he was a young father and uh, was worried that his son Jacob might grow up not knowing who his dad was. And, you know, the pressure of being a great young South African player following the footsteps of 
Ernie Ellis and Gary Player and, and all these wonderful uh, lions and giants of the game before him and actually be able to spend some time talking to, you know, some of the protagonists that week, whether it was, uh, you know, Brant Snedeker was in the fold and had a chance and Tiger played well and, and, and kind of just being able to build the drama and, you know, covering an event that, you know, unfolds over four days, but then having sat on Sunday night and a little bit Saturday, even writing, pre-writing, getting some scenes on the page um, and being able to write all night Sunday into Monday morning, following that story around 8 a.m. on Monday, um, you know, thousands of words and having talked to Trevor's brother, Mark, who was on uh, the scene and was watching his brother outside the ropes and, and talking to him after the green jacket ceremony and kind of tying all these different scenes together into one long Sports Illustrated game story. So it was pretty cool. It was interesting. You know, at the time, the Lakers and Celtics were playing the um, in the playoffs, and, and, and it was like I want to say that the cover was – was of, of Kevin Garnett and, and Kobe Bryant. Uh, uh, you know, they would later meet in that year's uh, NBA Finals, but it was like an NBA playoff-type preview. And, you know, it, it, I was bummed out because I thought Trevor should have been the cover, which, of course, a Tiger Woods or Phil Mickelson uh, usually gets the cover when they win a major. Um, Rory McIlroy's been the cover. The decision was that, you know, we're going to put Garnett and Kobe on the cover, and they had uh, – Trevor, a picture of Trevor in, in kind of in the in the upper right corner, uh, kind of mm -hmm. leading to the story inside the magazine. So it was always nice to have a cover story. I had Tiger, I did a Tiger cover story when he came back from uh, from injury. Um, did uh, two Super Bowl game stories, that Masters game story. So I had uh, Santonio Holmes on the cover, his uh, toe touch catch uh, in the corner of the end zone from from uh, Ben Roethlisberger to beat the Arizona Cardinals, and I also did the mm -hmm. Giants. Patriots Super Bowl, uh, their second meeting in Indianapolis uh, when Eli took a 2-1 lead on big brother Peyton at the time. And then, of course, Peyton would win a Super Bowl, a second one with the Broncos a couple years later. I think back and I, and I wonder, you were at the New York Times, and that's, that's big. But when you get the call to go to Sports Illustrated, you talk about Frank DeFord, you talk about Rick Riley, and now I'm not thinking about those guys i'm working as peers of that type of writer i am in that echelon now what was that like to you to 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 have that realization yeah it was amazing uh, having grown up reading sports illustrated and um you know subscribing and i was one of the kids who would take the covers and you know put them on his bedroom wall mm -hmm. and you know i remember the dr j thanks for the memories cover when he retired uh 1987 um, I remember Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, uh, when he said goodbye. I mean, this was such an iconic magazine. And, you know, it was interesting. I mean, I think if I had worked at Newsday and the New York Times and I had written some big stories before, so I wasn't overwhelmed when I got the email in 2007 from Terry McDonald, who was the, uh, the, the head editor at the time. And I tell you what, it was, it was a huge honor. Uh, and I was excited for the challenge, and there were definitely some butterflies, but it was more excitement as opposed to anxiety. It was like this is the culmination of many years of, of covering the game and covering the NFL and covering golf, and, and what a wonderful opportunity to work with such incredible writers and editors who had seen so much and lived through really the glory years of, of sports journalism. And I was very fortunate to catch the tail end of that before – you know, a lot of the layoffs and 
um, buyouts and kind of the shrinking of that uh, advertising dollar, as it were, especially as it relates to print. But uh, I was able to enjoy, you know, having some wonderful uh, experiences uh, writing for that magazine that I grew up reading and, and then grew up just being uh, a joyful part of my career. Well, and you talked about uh, coming down to Bay Hill when you would to cover that, and we'd go and play golf, and it was always during the NCAA tournament, so we'd be sitting there wringing our hands about UCLA. <laughs> Why is it that after I left, that's when you decided to come to Orlando and join Golf Channel? That's all I, I want know, to know. Right? That's the big question here. Coincidence. Well, you're in my home and neck of the woods. I, I went to Sherman Oaks Elementary School, <laughs> and uh, amazing that, uh, that you're back. We, we were on the opposite coast now. But yeah, it's been some of the great things about uh, this business is being able to travel and, you know, cover events and then be able to grab a meal with you and uh, and play some golf. And it's been, you know, definitely different in this era of COVID-19, not as much travel. Golf, one mm -hmm. of the few sports that's really thriving at this point and maybe attracting some new fans because it was one of the first sports out of the gate uh, that came back uh, when Colonial Tournament happened a couple months ago. And People are, have been treated to some incredible finishes with Dustin Johnson, John Rahm, Justin Thomas, Colin Morikawa. Uh, so golf is really kind of taking advantage of its uh, unique position as sports makes its way back, uh, you know, onto the field and into the fold. I know that, you know, during the, the shutdown period and there was no sports, we had to fill time on Fox Sports Radio. You're on morning drive. What was the strategy with uh, how you approached every day's show because you had nothing live to discuss? Huge challenge. Uh, you know, we all had basically ring lights and some of us had com uh, computers and some of us had television cameras that were given to us from the, the channel. And we made television from our homes and from our, my home office mm -hmm. and my colleagues, Anna Whiteley and Paige McKenzie, Robert Dameron, Lauren Thompson. On the weekends, Gary Williams and, and Matt Adams and Jaime Diaz, John Cook and company, you know, we, we kind of did what we could, which was kind of hopping on, you know, Teams or, or vMix or Zoom and, you know, hopping on our Wi-Fi or, or data, whatever could give us the strongest signal and dealing with some snafus from time to time and try to talk about a sport that was on hiatus. You know, most of the things we talked about were kind of evergreen stories, the legacies of players. Uh, and also, obviously, some of the news that would break about these tournaments being canceled, the Masters moving to the fall, U.S. Open from June to September. So there was no shortage of things to talk about, even if there were no golf tournaments specifically to talk about in terms of birdies and bogeys and leaderboards. But there was no shortage of news as, you know, we heard about the Asian swing being canceled on the LPGA or an Open Championship being postponed till 2021, Olympics being postponed till 2021, including the golf portion of the Olympic game. So there's actually no shortage of, of news to talk about. It just wasn't golf tournament news. You talked about uh, colonial being the restart viewership just took off. That had to be a big relief to everyone in, in your business that you're like, okay, are people going to come back? Or are they going to pay attention to golf? And sure enough, they took to it like it was the only sport and, and they haven't left. Yeah. Only game in town for a while. And I think people were curious to see what, this kind of COVID-19 era of golf would look like. I think it, you know, the, the stories early were, you know, a handful of, of positive tests, a couple of players, a couple of caddies. Um, but for the most part, it's been pretty smooth. And, you know, relative to the rest of the country, the numbers have been pretty small in terms of the percentage 
of the PGA Tour population. And I think the, the, the more time has gone on, the better all the tours have gotten at kind of keeping everyone in a bubble. I give the NBA credit as well with the, the NBA playoffs unfolding, you know, not too far from me here in Orlando down at Disney and seeing some great games and great series going to seven games and the Lakers uh, looking good with LeBron and, and Anthony Davis. So, you know, sports, uh, you know, what's that old line from Jurassic Park? Nature finds, you know, finds a way. And I, and I think sports is finding its way. We know what it means to, to us as a country in terms of our, our, our national um, you know, spirit and, and loving to, to have things to kind of get behind and pull for and root for. And it's been neat. I've just, as a sports fan, and obviously someone in the business, I'm, I'm rooting for sports to be back successfully and also to give us something to, to enjoy, take our minds off of what's been a very difficult 2020 uh, for so many of us. You know, you talk about uh, sport and spirit and pride and all that, and you're at Golf Channel, which is part of NBC. Well, that move to Golf Channel did something that I don't think you would have expected. It allowed you to cover the Olympics. And how exciting is that to have that just kind of come out of left field as an opportunity? It did. Um, it did and it didn't, though, because I actually covered the Olympics in 04, um, Athens for the New York Times. Okay. And uh, that didn't hurt my uh, my cause, my, my desire to be on the NBC team. So is neat to be able to say, oh, I've covered the Olympics now as a newspaper reporter and as a television broadcaster. And um, I was called by Becky Chapman, who uh, runs the Olympic coverage uh, for NBC and was neat to hear her voice. I was actually covering the Scottish Open. Uh, so I was overseas when she called. It would have been July or so or June, July of 2017 and saying we'd like you to be a part of our coverage uh, 2018 South Korea Pyeongchang and we like to cover biathlon now you think I didn't know anything about golf growing up I, I, <laughs> I knew even less about biathlon the discipline involving uh, cross-country skiing and rifle shooting and I studied up I watched old Olympics uh, NBC did a great job with research to give me stories to read and old Olympic games to watch and, and you know by the end of it uh, if not an expert, at least I was a little more knowledgeable than I was. But, you know, seeing these incredible athletes and, and, and doing what they do uh, on, on a ski uh, run with a, a rifle strapped to their back, it, it was a remarkable education. It's a reminder that it really doesn't matter what the sport is. If you have access to the stories behind, it's going to be just as entertaining as the biggest sport there is. Yeah, good stories are good stories. Uh, no matter the sport and, and the big story going into that Olympics uh, for the United States and biathlon was that no uh, American had ever medaled in the Olympics uh, in biathlon. Sadly, that stat continues. There were some wonderful runs and great, great folks uh, that I was able to cover. Uh, Lowell Bailey was, was one uh, American hopeful and gosh, I want to say that was his fourth or fifth Olympics. And, um, you know, I asked him, you know, would, would he mind coming to speak to me? This is after his last race. And he took a deep breath and he, and he said, okay, but he had to go, I'm, I'm going to go change first. So he went to go change. And I'm thinking, you know what? He's probably not going to come back. He's, he's bummed out. It was his last race. He told us before the games, he wouldn't be competing in another games. He did not win gold, silver, or bronze. Didn't, didn't uh, perform at his best, but you know, sure enough, 15, 20 minutes later, he came back out into the mix zone, as they call it. And, and he gave me just a wonderful interview, uh, held back some tears, 
And afterwards, I just said, hey, man, I really appreciated your time. Thank you so much. And he said, you know what? Thanks so much for your coverage. You know, this isn't, uh, you know, the Masters tournament where Tiger and Phil are used to reporters or uh, the Super Bowl with mm -hmm. Tom Brady, you know, being used to, you know, having hundreds, if not thousands of reporters asking questions. These were, you know, athletes who really did it for the love and, and didn't really have a lot of coverage. Um, so they were appreciative that I was out there freezing my you-know-what off uh, every night in the, in the mountains of South Korea, which were all night events, and seeing that, uh, that temperature gauge uh, hovering around zero uh, uh, Celsius, it was uh, so cold, and they were so appreciative of the coverage. It was just neat to be able to learn their backstories and, and watch them uh, perform at the highest, uh, highest level. You talk about great stories. Well, we've got a great story coming up. We have a postseason major with the U.S. Open and the Masters then coming in a couple months. It's a different dynamic for golf this year that makes it in, a, in its own way kind of like every other major sport where the majors are happening at the end of the season. Yeah, what a unique opportunity. And you want to talk about some great golf courses and we're coming off of seeing a wonderful a PGA Championship at Harding Park out, out, out west and you know, FedEx Cup playoffs, and, and I tell you what, the, the U.S. Open at Wingsfoot, uh, that just, it really kind of hits the, the soul of a golfer and a golf fan, and knowing the history there of the massacre at Wingsfoot 1974, or what happened to Phil Mickelson, a double bogey on the 72nd hole, costing him a chance at three straight majors, a chance to go to the Open with the opportunity to complete the, the Mickle Slam uh, they, they might have called it. So you're talking about uh, a September U.S. Open and then an autumn Masters. And I've talked to some members. Uh, um, I've talked to a, a past Masters champion, Craig Stadler, who said, you are not going to believe how beautiful the golf course is, how great it will play. You may not have the typical flowers. It might be a different flower blooming mm -hmm. as opposed to the azalea and dogwood. But uh, you have to think that the folks at Augusta National are not going to put on a poor product. They're going to put on a great product. Uh, the golf course will be fast. It's typically dry. In November, it'll be cold. It'll be a different challenge. But uh, in a year where we've been aching for sports to have a, a September U.S. Open and a November Masters, uh, pretty darn special. And what a great uh, spot that golf is in to have those things to look forward to. You talk about the weather at Augusta. There are those days during a regular scheduled Masters where it'll be cold and windy and scores just explode. Yeah. And it's very possible that we could have a tournament that is going to be just blustery and harsh on these players. 2007, the Zach Johnson year, blustery, cold, uh, a wind that was about as challenging as the players have ever faced. 08 with uh, Trevor Immelman, uh, not as tough as 07, but still very, very difficult. So temperatures probably typically in the 50s and 60s, you know, depending uh, on the weather pattern. But I, I think it's going to be a Masters where if you are a Tiger, uh, if you are a, a Dustin Johnson, a Brooks Kepka, a Rory, uh, a Sergio, a Phil, someone who has experience, who's played in all kinds of weather all kinds of wind at Augusta National who won't be surprised, uh, uh, you know, with a northwest wind or, a, a, you know, when one plays into or, or a 50-degree day, I think your experienced player is going to be the heavy favorite 
uh, going into that major uh, coming up in the autumn. Well, it's an exciting time for golf. We talked about the resurgence, the interest. Golf Data Tech releasing stats about increased uh, uh, record sales of equipment. And now uh, in July, 20% year-to-year increase in rounds played nationally. So the question is, how's your game? Yeah, my game is... uh... It's better. You know, I, I hesitate to say because I don't want to jinx it, but my handicap has dropped from an 18 uh, to a 16 uh, during this pandemic. And it's because I've played a lot more golf than I have uh, typically would have in a normal spring summer. Uh, so I've been able to just, it's just reps, like, like almost anything in life. Uh, the more you do, uh, the, the better uh, you do. So I've had uh, the luxury and the the blessing of having my boys become more interested in the game and mm-hmm. we can get out of my wife's hair for a little bit and go hit some balls in the range, go play nine holes, um, go play 18 holes. Um, and it's been neat to do that and to have some time uh, when I'm done with work uh, to go to hit some golf balls. I, I've got a tee time later today. I'm looking forward to. So uh, yeah, it's been neat to see the handicap steadily go down and to feel like the golf club, belongs in my hands for a change. And I'm excited to go shopping myself pretty soon because I want to get some more clubs, get some new wedges, and and see uh, see just how far I can take this crazy game. Oh, I'll tell you what. Go to thegolfspotlight.com, see some of my stuff from this year. Okay. From, from fitting to wedges, there are some incredible things out there that are unreal. I'll just say Golfspotlight.com. that. Golfspotlight.com. I'm going to check it out. I'm, I'm looking <laughs> for some wedges in particular. Oh, mm-hmm. I've come to the right place. Yes, sir. <laughs> now, the pandemic, not the only groundbreaking situation in 2020. There's been a lot of racial unrest and discussion this year. Yeah. And NBC tapped you to conduct interviews on race and sports in America. What did it mean to you to get that opportunity to have those discussions? Incredible honor and kind of a reminder of, of my unique uh, place uh, at NBC, at, at Golf Channel, uh, even more so. Um, to be able to have those conversations as an African-American man who grew up, you know, with parents who, who went to Compton High School, you know, whereas I grew up in the San Fernando Valley, uh, who, who's been often the only African-American, whether it's in a classroom or uh, a press room, uh, I have been the only uh, from time to time and kind of being comfortable in, in both worlds and being able to speak on some issues that some folks might not even know and, you know, being able to write for golfchannel.com and tell them some stories that happened to me as uh, a young male uh, in this country. And they were surprised, Damon, you're so happy. You're a smiling guy. You're so positive. And I'm all those things, but I've also dealt with some things and been, you know, know, pulled over and and frisked and asked if I had drugs or weapons and had my car searched. And uh, I'm a lover, not a fighter. And uh, it's, uh, I wanted to convey those things that, uh, you know, in the wake of the death of George Floyd, that it kind of brought some things back up in me and, being on television five days a week, I'm thankful for the job I have, but I just felt like I couldn't be honest with the viewer without being able to express myself and express uh, the pain and the conflict that I've been feeling. And I feel like the NBC higher-ups that, that tapped me to go talk to Charles Barkley and Steph Curry and Jimmy Rollins, Ozzie Smith, Anthony Lynn, Troy Mullins, James Blake, uh, it was, and Kyle Rudolph, it was really just an opportunity to say, Damon, we know you've uh, – opened your heart and you have a unique perspective, you know, why don't you kind of moderate these great athletes and allow them to do the same. And I think the most of the feedback I've got has been so positive. Everybody wants 
uh, the best for, for this country. And I think the more you talk about even the uncomfortable subjects, uh, the more enlightened and better off we'll be. Now, you're, as you mentioned, from Southern California. I'm from California. We went to the same school where Jackie Robinson was able to play four sports. Yeah. Starting in 1939. Now, as you've moved from West to East, you've been around the country. Is it amazing to you still to see how it's different place to place? I mean, again, you, 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 you know, I know this back in the 1950s, Rayford Johnson was the UCLA student body president in the fifties. Yeah. And yet in other places, integration happens so much later and, and to see that experience and to be able to share that, you know what, it's not always been separated and people have been accepting for years and yet it's, it's just different place to place. Yeah, it's been interesting, you know, living in, in Florida and, and traveling throughout the South and even in my own neighborhood in Winter Park, Florida, uh, which is, is segregated. You know, it's, it's a, a vestige of the, old, uh, of the old South. And it's not, you know, by law uh, segregated, but there was a time in this country when because of, you know, certain lo- local laws and state laws and housing deeds, uh, you know, African-Americans were discouraged from living in certain neighborhoods and, and encouraged uh, to live in other neighborhoods and, and not the better neighborhoods. And it's been an eye-opener for me to read books like The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein and, and learn about redlining and different things that kind of explain to me how Chicago became Chicago and St. Louis became St. Louis and Atlanta, Atlanta, and, you know, different aspects of, of what we're seeing today. Uh, and these are, are hard truths for a lot of us to, to face. And I think most people are good people in this country. And I think we've come a huge uh, distance from, from our, our, our more complicated past. But I also think that it's still a time for enlightenment for, for all of us to kind of look inward and, and make sure we're not just good people, but we're also, you know, anti-racist and that we're, you know, vigilant and aware of, of things that are happening. And I, and I do think that, you know, I've said this before, we're a very young country relative to a lot of the countries on the planet. And uh, we still have some growing to do, some learning to do, and hopefully some loving uh, to do as well. And, and I'm an optimist, you know me, positive person by nature, and, and I'm optimistic that we'll continue to grow and get better. When I talk with equipment designers and manufacturers, I like to conclude our talks with uh, asking them about a favorite product from their careers. Instead, I'm going to do a deep dive into the golf bag of Damon Hack. Do you have a favorite club, maybe one from the past? Maybe it was a prized golf instrument, or maybe just buying it made you feel like, okay, I've made it. I'm progressing to the next level of a, as a player. I tell you what, Ralph, I had a five wood from Wilson about a decade ago. It's the best five wood I've ever hit. Uh, I've never been able to, to find one that I hit as well. One of those clubs that narrow, short par four, you can hit it with confidence. It's just the, the feel off of the club face was one of the best I've ever had. You know, as time went on, it just the, the club was a little too old for the modern golf ball. Mm-hmm. So, but for a good stretch, 10, 15 years ago, that club never left my bag. It was just a, a thing of beauty. I looked for, it was like a D, it was like a Wilson D3 or D2, five wood. And I looked for, it's like cousins in the three wood and the driver. I, you know, I wanted to find other ones to, to match it and I never could find it. I, I can't even tell you where I got it from. Somehow it ended up in my bag and, and I loved it. I, I loved it like uh, 
like a, like I loved a like a puppy. It just was it was uh, it was it was my best friend, Ralph. You understand? So right. uh, uh, since then, I'd say it's a a Titleist hybrid that has kind of replaced it as my go-to club when the the wind is up and the fairway is narrow. But that five wood from Wilson uh, was my favorite club, hands down. All right. That's the definitive answer that I was looking for is, is that club that no one would ever think of, but we all have that club that, that really makes a difference in our game. Well, Damon, thanks for joining me here on the range. It's always great when you and I get together and see each other in person. And I really appreciate all the hard work you put in, especially through this year and working from home and everything. Thanks for joining us all here on the range. You're the best, Ralph. Look forward to our next chat. That was Damon Hack, one of the hosts of Morning Drive on Golf Channel. It's a fun time right now in the golf industry. Sales are spiking, the rounds are going up, and there is a lot to watch now with the Golf Channel lineup. Be sure to tune in for that, and I really appreciated the wide-ranging discussion that he and I were able to have. Before we go, I have some words of advice in this summer of golf and its revival. If you're new to the game or coming back from an extended absence, get lessons. The top players in the world work with instructors, so there's no shame in it. You're just trying to be a better player because, well, you know, hitting better shots makes golf a lot more fun, and you owe that to yourself. Now, if you're a golf course operator, rounds are up. In fact, many tee sheets are booked solid. You can further increase your revenue by offering increased opportunities for the player I just mentioned, someone new to the game or back after a long absence offer up specials and programs to help these people become the best golfers they can be. Once they get that taste of success in the course, I know it's almost impossible for anyone to want to give it up. Let's continue to grow this game through better play. If you want to know more about golf equipment, subscribe to us on YouTube at The Golf Spotlight. For the latest on the range, follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Again, it's The Golf Spotlight, as we welcome your comments there anytime. Now you've listened this far, so subscribe to The Range on iTunes or follow us on Spotify or iHeart. We have new shows dropping every Wednesday. Now that'll do it for this episode of The Range, so let's tee it up or kick back and watch some golf on TV. Either way works. And we'll talk to you next time right here on The Range.
For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.